this week I was reading a couple of different articles about laws that are, are in place but we don't really know about. And so one of, the, one of the things, I don't know if you know this, if you are planning on visiting Arizona, just so you know, it is illegal to cut a cactus in Arizona. It is punishable by 25 years in prison. Uh, so I would very much not recommend doing that. If you go to Switzerland, it is against the law to flush the toilet after 10 p.m. There is a noise law and you have to be quiet. And so if you got to go to the toilet, make it 9.59, right? Like you, at 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., cannot flush the toilet. It's against the law. Also, in West Australia, it is against the law. It is illegal to be in possession of more than 50 kgs of potatoes at one time. I don't know why you would, but you can't. If you have more than 50 kgs of potatoes, 49, you're fine. 50, it's against the law. Also in Australia, it is against the law to disrupt a funeral or a wedding. If you do, you could be fined 10,000 euro and sent to prison for two years just for disrupting a wedding or a funeral. So these are laws that we don't often even know that are actual laws. But then there's the, the flip side of this, right? There are things that we think are laws, but actually aren't. Here's one that isn't a law. Counting cards in a casino is not against the law. Strongly, like, it's not recommended. If they catch you doing this, they can kick you out because you're stealing money and they don't like that. But, like, it is not against the law. Now, if they kick you out and you come back in, that's trespassing. That's against the law. But counting cards in a casino, not against the law. If you're, ever, if you're ever in America and you want to own an exotic animal, an elephant, giraffe, monkey, tiger, 38 states, you can do that. It's perfectly legal to own an animal like that in 38 states in America. Buying one is a completely different question, but owning it, you, you can do that. I don't know if you guys ever heard this when you were a kid. I know I did, and I've even told my kids this, like riding at night in the car with the light on. I was always told, you can't ride with the light on, that's illegal. Turns out it's not. It's not illegal. It's annoying, hard to see, but it's not against the law to ride at night with the light on inside the car. Last thing. Do you know in Germany, it is completely legal to break out of prison? Completely legal. Now, if you get caught, you go back to jail, you still have to pay your, your time that you were in prison for, but you can break out. In Holland, not only are you, is it a, a legal to break out of prison, it's also legal to run from the cops because they believe that there is this desire within us for freedom, and that is one of our rights. And so if someone's trying to take your freedom away, you are free to run from the cops. Now, if they catch you, you're not going to get more time added for running, but you still will get punished for the crime that you are being arrested for. So there you go. So here's the thing, and there's tons more of these, but we all have these things from time to time that we believe to be true, but actually it's not true at all. We've spent our lives driving around telling our kids, don't turn the light on in the car at night because we say it's against law, but in reality, it's fine. We spend our lives flushing the toilet in Switzerland past 10 p.m. not knowing that it's against the law to do that. There's just some assumptions that we have reached that just aren't true. In the text that we read today, this is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They have drawn some conclusion. They've reached some assumptions of something that they think to be true, that they think to be a reality, but actually it's, it's not. It's not true. And as we dive into chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, like it seems 
a little out of place. Like we just got done talking about like using Jesus's name. There's been a lot of powerful things. Jesus predicts his death, a lot of different things that have happened. But then we dive into Mark chapter 10 and it just seems a little bit out of place. But what we're going to see is actually if we take Mark 10 and we place it right beside Mark 8, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship, then it seems to fit. So what, what Jesus is getting out for us, when Mark is recording this for us, what he is letting us know is as followers of Jesus, the way that we view marriage is radically different. The way that we view children is radically different. The way that we view money is radically different. So let's dive in to see the teachings of Jesus Mark chapter 10, follow along in verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Now, as we read through this passage, like what we see at the very end is, as per usual, when the crowds gather around Jesus, he begins to teach the crowds. Mark doesn't tell us what he is teaching, only the fact that he is. And if you're anything like me, when you read chapter 10, verse 1, that's the part that you pay attention to. Because there's something else, though, in, in Mark 10, that we, verse 1, that we need to read. Look at the beginning. It says, Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan. Now, if you're anything like me, and you don't like geography. You just kind of like skip all past that. Like, okay, that's fine. I just want to get to the good stuff, right? Let's skip past the locations. Like, let's get past the semantics and actually get to the part where Jesus does some teaching. Anyone guilty of that? Like, you just start read some of these places in the Bible. Like, I don't know where that is. That's probably not important anyway. However, it is actually really dangerous for us to do that. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 1 especially. This is more than just a transitional sentence. Mark isn't just saying, and then. He is doing that, but he's doing more. He's moving the story. He's, he's cluing us into some really significant thing. Whether or not you believe it or not, this first, these locations are important for at least three different reasons. Reason number one is this is Roman territory. So that's significant for us. Uh, Judea is it's the southernmost part of, Romans, of Rome's providence. It was ruled by Roman authority and Ro Roman law. And why does that matter? Because Jesus is getting ready to spend some time talking about marriage. He's going to start talking about sexuality. He's going to talk about love. And I think sometimes our 21st century minds will read the scriptures and be like, well, the Bible doesn't understand our world. The Bible doesn't understand our context. The Bible doesn't really get it. Like, sure, that may have been true then, but like Jesus doesn't really understand our world. However, if we start reading through the history of Rome in the time of Jesus, Rome was a very morally and sexually corrupt place. Like Rome was a mess. They have temple prostitutes that the way of worship is like having sex with prostitutes in front of these, these gods of fertility. There's like naked people all around, like pornography is there. There's homosexuality, like things are a mess. We in the 21st century, we're not the first people to have issues with gender. The 21st century did not come up with homosexuality. We are, are, we're not the people who come up with this. This has been a struggle from the beginning. We can actually track this all the way back to Genesis chapter 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah when the men are at, wanting to bring the angels out to have sex with them. Like we are not the first 
century. We are not the first people to struggle with sexuality or marriage. And so we might think, we might look at verse 1 and say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't really understand what our 21st century is like. The reality is 21st century Rome and our 21st century world are a lot alike. And Jesus understands. To say that the Bible doesn't understand this culture, man, that's, can be, that's prideful at worst, naive at best. So the Bible understands. So that's reason number one. This is Roman territory. That's important for our context. Number two is this is Herod Antipas's authority. This is where Herod Antipas is ruling. Where do we know Herod Antipas from? If we look back to, to Mark chapter 6, we experience this guy. His name is Herod, and he puts this other guy in prison by the name of John the Baptist. He also has him beheaded. Why is Herod Antipas? What is his problem with John the Baptist? John criticizes his divorce and his remarriage to Herodias. That's what sets him off. That's what gets him upset. And so when the Pharisees ask this question in verse 2, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Like, it's an odd question because it is already assumed that that's a thing you can do. So what are the Pharisees doing here? It's likely that they're very aware of where Jesus stood on this topic. And so they are wanting to get, they're going to want to get him caught. They're hoping maybe, just maybe, we can get Jesus to say something. Herod will get mad again. We'll take Jesus away, and they'll deal with Jesus, and we don't have to worry about him anymore. Here's the reason, number three, this is important. So first, Roman territory. Two, Herod Antipas's authority. And three is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Mark is making Jesus, he's heading there. As you look on the map, like you can start to see as you like look at Capernaum and then this area, okay, they're on their way to Jerusalem, literally, but also figuratively. One of the things that we might find as we read through the scriptures is at times, gospel writers will make this statement, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And then you look at a map and be like, well... I'm not great at geography, but it seems like Jesus is heading in the complete opposite direction of Jerusalem. But it's just a reminder. What is Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to die on a cross. And so Mark is letting us know, like, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Literally, he's on his way there. But figuratively, he is on his way to the cross. Mark has been spending his whole gospel making a beeline for Jesus to the cross. Mark's fate, one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. For the first 10 chapters, and you guys have probably experienced this as we've been walking through it, like there's a lot of stuff. Mark is just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and immediately this happened. He spends 10 chapters talking about Jesus's life and his ministry, those three years of Jesus's ministry. When we dive into Mark 11, he's gonna spend the next six chapters from Mark 11 through the rest of the book talking about the final days of Jesus's life, his death, his, his resurrection. So the narrative is going to speed, slow way down. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the location, but also to the appointment, to the cross. He is on his way there. Mark chapter 10, verse 2 says this. So the Pharisees came up and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Here's what we see throughout the Gospels. Almost always when Jesus attracts a crowd, he also attracts the Pharisees. And here they are again. Jesus is there, there's this crowd, and the Pharisees show up, 
and they ask him his question. Notice their intention. He, they are trying to what? Trap him, right? They're not actually looking for an answer to the question. So I think it's just wise for us to operate under the assumption, under the premise that trying to trap Jesus is a bad idea. And this is what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to trap him. They don't really want him to answer the question. They could really care less. The, the question's already been answered. There's a lot of rules and a lot of thought that's already been gone for this. There's two primary thoughts that have happened. And both of them, both of the rabbis who, who are the main voices on divorce, they both say you can. It's just a matter of, of the reasoning. So that the, it's already assumed that divorce is going to happen. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus. Either Jesus doesn't agree with Moses, and thus he's a false prophet, or he does agree, he speaks out of this, and maybe they can turn him over to Herod Antipas. And so this is nothing more than just a trap, a trick, trying to catch Jesus. And I don't know if you guys remember this. A few weeks back, we talked about this word trap. And it can also be understood as tempt. This is the same word that is used of, of Satan in Mark chapter 1 of what, Jesus, or what he's doing to Jesus when he's in the wilderness for 40 days. He is tempting him. So another way that we can see this word, though, is the word examine. And I think that's a really helpful idea, cross-examining. This is what they're doing to Jesus. Anybody ever watch like a cop show or like a movie that has a courtroom scene? And like in that movie, there's this moment where like the, the person who's, who's on trial, they go up on the, the witness stand and the solicitor is just there, the bar barrister is there just asking them questions, getting them to walk through what happened. And then they'll say no further questions. They'll go and sit down. Then the, the prosecutor will come up and they'll start cross-examining, right? They'll be like, well, you said this. And they're trying to get them to change their story. They're trying to find any loophole, any hole in the story that they have, something that they can try to exploit. This is what the Pharisees are trying to do for Jesus. They're trying to cross-examine him. They're trying to get him to say something, trying to, to trap him, trying to get him to change his story so that they can get him. And Jesus answered them in verse 3 and 4. What did Moses say? Well, Jesus answered them with this question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a, wit, a written notice of divorce and send her away. Notice how Jesus answered the question. He answered the question with a question. And that is, that is very Jesus. If you guys get bored this afternoon and you want to read through the Gospels, let me just encourage you, like read through the Gospels and mark how many questions Jesus asked. If you don't have time to do that, I'll give you the answer. It's 307. In the Gospels, Jesus asked 307 questions. He has asked 182 questions. You know how many of those 182 questions he answers directly? Three. He answers one about whether we should pay taxes to Caesar. He answers one about his identity. He answers one about the kingdom. The rest, Jesus asks questions about a question. So if we want to be more like Jesus, maybe what we should do is just spend a little less time talking and more time asking good questions. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus, rather than being baited into this argument and like point, counterpoint, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus asks them a question. I think we would all learn a lot from that. I know I can of not getting baited into every single argument, not jumping into that. And Jesus doesn't do that. He asks this good question. And man, I love the fact of what Jesus is doing here in verse 3. He asks them, 
what did Moses say in the law about divorce? Jesus is inviting the, the Pharisees to actually correct him. Jesus has invited the Pharisees to actually correct the, the, the understanding that they have. He's saying, hey, what did Moses actually say? He's encouraging them. Hey, guys, go and look. Go and see. Rather than just buying into what all the people around you have said, why don't you actually look for yourself to try to see what did Moses actually say? I mean, have we ever done this? Have we ever just bought into the lies of our world around us and failed to even challenge them? Have we ever done that? That social media influencer who's on there and, and telling us this is what we need, this is what we need to look like, this is what we need in order to be, to be loved or valued in our world, do we ever even question it? When, our, when the next ad comes up telling you this is the car that you need, this is what you need to be happy, do we question it? Do we say, is that actually true? Or when some, somebody, maybe they're a friend of ours, but they're not a believer and they give us some advice, do we ask the question, is that actually good advice? Is that true? And I think for us, what would be really helpful and wise is to ask this simple, simple question, biblically, is it true? What if we operated under that premise? Constantly, when we're hearing things that are being said again to us, or questions that are being asked, or, or information or advice that's being posed to us, what if we ask that question, critically ask the question, biblically, is it true? Notice the premise that we're operating off is the biblically, is it true? Not emotionally, not intellectually, not culturally, but biblically, is it true? This is what Jesus is asking the, the Pharisees to do. Hey, guys, look at the Bible. Look at the word and see if it's true. So let's look. Let's look at the passage that they're quoting. It's from Deuteronomy 24, if you want to follow along. The passage that they're looking at is, is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So let's, let's read what, what Moses writes here. He says, Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another woman. Another man. She is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce and hands it to her and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. This would be a detestable, this would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession. Now any, did you guys read any command where Moses says, you shall divorce your wife? Any commands there? Did Moses say, hey guys, this is, this is your right. You have the opportunity to do this if you want. Is, this what, is that what Moses is doing? No, what is he doing? Moses is not giving us a command. He's not even telling us you should do this. He is saying, he's accepting the premise that divorce is going to happen. And it has happened. And so rather than advocating for it, what Moses is doing for us is he's putting some parameters in place around it so that he can help protect the people. They can help protect the most vulnerable in that culture, which would be women and children. What Deuteronomy 24 is doing, it forces the person to ask the question, to really think about going 
going through this or going for this. Because what does Deuteronomy 24 tell us? There's no going back. You can't just divorce this woman and be like, well, I changed my mind. I want to remarry her again and treat her like she's a piece of property. That is not what we're going to do. And Moses is like, once you make this decision, it's final. And so Moses is putting some, some regulations around it to help protect people. Is he commanding you should, do, you should get a divorce? No. Is he saying this is your right? No. He's protecting those who Jesus is going to refer to as having hard hearts. And so in verse 4, though, Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, trying to get them to clarify, and they say this, well, he permitted it. Notice they've, they've kind of changed a little bit. Not that he commanded it, not that it's our right anymore, but they, that he permitted it. Here's what's, here's what's happening. The Pharisees are looking for loopholes. They're looking for what is the most that I can do and still be within the legal bounds of the law. What can I get away with without actually being, being wrong? Man, have we ever done that with following Jesus? We ever thought about that? Like, okay, what's the most that I can do before it's sin? And we start operating in under this incorrect premise that like sin is going to be the thing that brings us satisfaction. So we've got to get as close to that and do as much of that as we can without actually breaking the law. How many times do we look for loopholes in our faith? Like, okay, do I really have to take a Sabbath? Do I really have to pray? Do I really need to do those things? Like, or is that kind of just highly recommended? Not commanded, but strongly recommended. Like, how often are we doing those kind of things? And when I was in student ministry, more years ago now than I wish it was, um, I used to have this conversation with, with teenagers very often. So one of my teenagers, would, they're Christians, followers of Jesus, and they would start, they'd get in a relationship. And almost inevitably, about a month into that relationship, they'd come up to me and like, Luke, can we talk? I'm like, yeah, we can talk. And I'd, we'd go to my office and we'd sit down and, they, and they're like kind of, it's awkward. They're like, I don't really know. I was like, okay, look, what's up? And they don't, don't really want to say. And finally they'll come out with it. It was like, okay, Luke, you know I'm in a relationship now. Yes, I know. He's like, how much can I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's sin? I can't tell you how many dozens of times I have had to answer that question. How much can we kiss before it's wrong? How much touching can we do before it's sinful? How much should I text? How much should we call before it's wrong? And always my response is you're asking the wrong question. It's not the right question. And this is what Jesus is about to point out here. The question for us isn't how close can we get to sin, but rather how close can we get to Jesus? This is the question we need to be asking. Not how many loopholes can I jump through and still technically be in the will of the Father, but how close, how much can I live my life in following after him, in allegiance with him? How closely can I align my life with Jesus so that I look like Jesus, I act like Jesus, I do what Jesus did? How, how much can I do that? That's the question that we need to be asking. Jesus is saying, no, don't look for loopholes. Look to get closer to me. Don't look to see how much you can get away with before it's wrong or before it's sinful. Take every opportunity to get closer to me, closer in relationship with me. Verse 5, Jesus replies this. He says, He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. That statement's hard to take. 
He wrote this concession. He wrote this command because our hearts are hard. Jesus is saying divorce is neither a right nor a privilege. It's a concession for our hearts that are hard. It's not, a, it's not a right, it's not a privilege. It is a concession because we are people who don't do the will of the Father. We are people who, whose hearts are hard. One of the things like you guys have heard me say before, but it's relevant again, just because you can, and it doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Maybe Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, just because you can leave your wife because she burnt a meal doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can leave your wife because you found one who's more attractive doesn't mean that you should. Maybe Jesus is saying to us, like, just because you can leave your husband because he lost his hair doesn't mean that he should. You should. Praise God for that, right? At least for me. Like, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Just because your marriage is tough and things have gotten hard doesn't mean you should just walk away and quit. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. This idea of our hearts being hard are used five times in the Bible. And every single time it's in connection to rebellion against God. Every time that we are called, the reason this is happening of our hearts being hard, it's because we've been resistant to the thing of God, to the will of God. So God never intended divorce to be a thing. God never meant for this to be a thing. The only reason it came about is because we have been rebellious against God's will. We have been resistant to what he desires for us. Our hearts have become hard. Divorce was never the intention. It was never what God wanted, and that's why Jesus goes back to the the plan from the very beginning. When Jesus replies back to them, this is what he says. Let's read verses 6 through 9. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. So to be perfectly clear, what God commanded was commitment in a marriage relationship, in a marriage covenant. What he permitted was divorce because our hearts are hard. As Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and 2, Something is really important for us. When Jesus is quoting Genesis 1 and 2, he is giving us the definition, the design for love, for marriage, for sexuality. Like Jesus is laying out the blueprint for all of it. And this is what it is. It's one man, one woman, in a lifelong monogamous marriage relationship pursuing God. I know I just said a lot of words, but hear that again. Here's the design for for love, for marriage, for sex, is one man, one, one woman in a lifelong monogamous, selfless relationship, marriage relationship, pursuing after God. That's the plan. That's the design. And when Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and 2, it's really significant for us. Do you guys remember what happened in Genesis 3? Sin enters the world, right? 
everything gets messed up. Sin contaminates everything. So God's design in Genesis 1 and 2 is the pre-fall world when everything is perfect and everything is right. And so God goes on to say, like, this is what is perfect. This is how it should be. So the ethic of marriage that Jesus is quoting, the ethic for love and sex, is, is a blueprint from the, the pre-fall world. This is what God's design is. And here's the reality. Is anything outside of this design, homosexuality, casual hookups, pornography, blatant, blatant divorce, swinging, living together, self-serving relationships, friends with benefits, premarital sex, orgies, teenagers, college students, sending naked pictures of themselves via Snapchat, affairs, everything outside of this design is sinful and wrong. It's not what God intended. It's a result of Genesis 3, our, our fallen condition, the sin that is contaminated, the sin that is, has broken us down. And here's the reason why as a church and why Christians throughout history have been against these things. It's not just because they're wrong or they're sinful. Yeah, they are. Because it makes us, the reason we're against this, the reason the Bible stands against these things is because it makes us less of what we were created to be. It makes us less human. Sin always makes us less human. It always makes us less alive. The original design for love and marriage and sex, God knows it's best. He knows it's most life-giving. He knows it's most satisfying. And this is what he desires for us. He doesn't want us to deal with the pain and the mess up of all these other things. When, when stuff gets messy, this is what he desires for each and one of us, because he knows this is best. This is the way life works. Life works best. A few weeks ago, there uh, a, a zoo in East China. Uh, they became they got under a, a little bit of pressure and heat uh, for for this. They are being accused of of putting a human in a bear costume. Rather than having real bears in their, in their zoos, they're being accused of putting a, uh, a human in bear costume. Now, the, the zoo has said, when it comes to bears, this is their official statement, when it comes to bears, the first thing that comes to mind is a huge figure with, power, with amazing power. But not all bears are behemoths in power and danger personified. Some bears, which apparently this is, they are more petite. The smallest bears in the world. Sun bears are the size of a large dog, standing almost 1.3 meters tall on their hind legs. Now, I don't really care what the zoo says. I got to admit, that looks like a person in a bear costume. That does not look like a real bear. But here's the thing. This, this has a point. You guys decide what you think. It's up to you. Here's the point. This has a point. When something seems off, when something seems wrong, questions start to circle, right? Like, this is all over social media. There's been tons of pictures around social media of people being like, that can't be a bear. That it seems wrong, it seems off. But here's the reality. When something seems wrong, when something seems off, questions begin to circle. And the same thing is true for us as followers of Jesus. If our lives fail to look any different than the lives of people around us, questions are beginning to circle. Questions begin to swarm. If our marriages don't look different than those who are not followers of Jesus, 
questions begin to circulate and, and, and form. Because as followers of Jesus, our lives are different. This includes our marriages. As followers of Jesus, our lives are different. This, conclude, this includes our marriages. If you flip to Ephesians 5, Paul is giving a, an idea of what marriage in a, a Christian relationship should look like. There's a command to the husband. The husband's command is, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So as husbands, we love our wives sacrificially. We put their needs above our own. They're, they're not they're there to serve us and to care for us. We are there to love them, to care for them, to serve them in a way that, that reflects Jesus' love for the church. We are not to treat them as property or, or less than. We are to treat them and love them above ourselves. That's the husband's call in Scripture. The wife's call is to submit to her husband. And I'll be real honest, I'm not a wife, but here's what I know to be true. If a husband is loving her, his wife the way Christ loves the church, submission is easy because they are loving them in a way that reflects their true value. It's easy to submit to a husband who is treating you the way that Christ loves the church. And so it begins to, to work this way out. This is the way our marriages are meant to be. And Paul says, like, in doing so, it, in Ephesians 5.32, he says, this is a great mystery. Marriage is a great mystery. It's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. And here's, here's the thing. There's not a ton of married people in the room right now. Some may be listening online, and eventually some of you may be married. Maybe not. Who knows? But as a church, we care about you, and we care about your marriages. And so just, just a moment. I just want to let you know a couple of things that we care deeply about. Maybe some of you are in a moment where your marriage is not very good. And maybe you don't want to admit it. Because admitting you have a problem means you actually have a problem. Maybe today that's what you need to do. And so as a church, what we want to do, we want to come alongside you. We want to pray for you. you maybe it's just good to know and to be seen. And just to acknowledge that things aren't great. If that's the case, man, find Stephen and I. Let's, let's talk about that. Maybe you look at your marriage and you're like, yeah, prayer's not going to cut it. I need more than that. Maybe you need some marriage counseling. And here's the thing, maybe you can't afford it. As a church, we're going to come alongside you. We're going to help you get the counseling that you need because we care about your marriages. We want your marriages to thrive. We care about them. Maybe you look at your marriage and you're examining the, what I really need. What our marriage really needs is a night away. We need a date night just to be together. And you, maybe you don't know who to watch your kids. Guess what? Every single person who volunteers in our children's ministry, they're guard vetted. The reason that they go upstairs every other week or whatever it is is because they love you. They love your kids. And so if that's what you need in order for your marriage to be what God desired it to be, Let's talk to us. We'll help you find someone to help mind your kids. We'll do that. At times at church, we've had like a, a night where it was just like childcare, so you could go out and have a date night. If those things would be beneficial, like we want to do that. Because as a church, we care about your marriage. We want to come alongside you and help you any way that you can, that we can. And so before we go on, and I just want to pray, I want to pray for our marriages. For people who are here, people who aren't, I just, just want to do that for a second.
Father, we thank you for the chance that we have to be, to be spouses, to be married, Lord. Thank you for the chance that we have to love. And God, I just pray that the way that we love our spouses will be a reflection of the way that you love us. And Father, maybe there's some people in the room or listening in online that, man, things just aren't where they're meant to be. Marriages just aren't good and they're not where they desire them to be. So Lord, I just want to pray for those marriages right now. God, I pray that you bring restoration to broken marriages. God, I pray you bring healing to hurt marriages. God, I pray you bring life to dead marriages. And Lord, I pray that you bring more joy to joyful marriages. God, for, for others of us in the room or online, maybe we're not married. And Lord, I pray even now that you are, you, are, you are working in our hearts to be the spouse that you desire us to be. God, whether it's next year or 10 years from now, God, I pray that you are, you're moving in our lives to make us more like your son, Jesus, so we can love our spouse well, so we can serve our spouse well. God, help us as a people to show the world what you're like by the way that we love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's continue on in, in Mark's gospel. 10 through, through 12, the story finishes this way. It says, later, when he was alone, his disciples, with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. Jesus told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Two things are, are really significant here. One is Jesus is giving the authority. He's giving the right to both the woman and the man. It's no longer just a man. Like Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are equal in this. There's not one that's less significant than the other. And that's important. They're not to be treated as property, but as people. But as we read this passage, especially in light of verse 9, which says, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Here's the idea, is there may be a letter, a written letter of divorce that is given to, to an individual, to, a, to a, a spouse. That might be valid for that, but since God has joined together the marriage, it's not valid for him. That when we enter into another relationship, that it seems like, it seems like adultery to him because he has bind together this relationship. And it's in that moment that, that, that it's broken. And so, this is, there's a lot of questions that we can surround around this, but here's the real issue that I want us to get at. One of the biggest problems, if you have questions about this, we can ask more questions, we can talk about this later, let's do that. But here's the real issue with the question. is an attempt is being made to justify something that breaks the heart of the Father. When we get down to it, that's the problem is an attempt is being made to justify something that breaks the heart of our Father. And sometimes we do the same thing, right? Did God really say that I should do this? And we end up like justifying our sinful behavior, something that breaks God's heart. Or, or we say things like, okay, that may have been true then, but it's not necessarily true now. And we do something, we justify something that breaks the heart of our Father. Or we give the justification, well, it's not really hurting anyone. Or, oh, it makes me happy. It makes me feel good. And so I should do it, right? And so what begins to happen is we justify something 
that breaks the heart of our Father. And man, as we walk in through a topic like this, one about love and marriage and divorce and sexuality, like, I understand. And I know that there's some baggage that goes along with this. There's some, some hurt that maybe a lot of us may be experiencing here where we've gone wrong in this in our lives or somebody else has gone wrong with this in our, their lives and it has brought pain upon us. Maybe as we read through this, we talk about God's design for love and marriage and sex, like you're just reminded of all the ways that we've messed this up already. Can I remind you of something? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he is about to die on a cross to deal with our pain, our shame, our regret, our sin, our guilt, once and for all. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and in Psalm 32, David is, is praying a prayer of confession. David has, this, has an affair with Bathsheba, ends up having her husband killed. Mess is made of his life. He's messed it up. And finally, in verse th- chapter 32 of Psalm, verse 5, he says this, Finally, I confessed all of my sin to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And I know there is a lot of guilt and shame and regret that can be tied up in this. Each week, why do we have a time of confession? So we confess our sins to God so that our guilt can be gone. Listen to the end of verse 5 again. He says, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Jesus doesn't just want to forgive the guilt of your... He doesn't want to just forgive your sin. He does much more than that for us on the cross. He removes the guilt of it. So any shame, any regret, any guilt that is lingering as we walk through these topics, man, Jesus has dealt with that on the cross. And in verse 6, David writes this. He says, Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. Today, maybe it's the day to confess to someone, to confess to God the sin that we have in our lives. Confess it because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And here's the reality. There is no sin that Jesus didn't pay on the cross. There is no pain that the Spirit can't heal. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and in doing so, he wants to take our sin, our guilt, our shame, and cover it up in the floodwaters. He wants to completely cover us. I'm going to pray for us, and then together, we're going to pray this prayer of confession. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that you...